Don't you love Rich and Emily, their enthusiasm and commitment, and thank you so much for praying and for your ministry. Church, New Covenant, I love you, and it's so good to be worshiping with you the last few weeks, and great to have the opportunity to preach God's Word today. So let's open the Bible to the book of Acts, and as you open your Bibles to that book once more, I want you to imagine that you're a member of a small church in a very big city. There are only 120 members in your church. Your senior pastor has just left, and his absence has left a huge hole in your hearts. Less than two months ago, there was another leader who publicly betrayed the senior pastor and flamed out in a horrific scandal that ended with suicide. There's been a lot of discussion about how you're going to replace him. You don't have a building to meet in, so you're renting an upper floor in the city. You don't have much money. The surrounding culture is resistant to your message, and some are so hostile, they'd like, out, they'd like to wipe out the name and the memory of your founding pastor altogether. How is a little church like yours going to impact the community around you? How are you going to survive, let alone thrive? Well, that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. They've seen their Lord Jesus be arrested, beaten, crucified, buried, and then gloriously resurrected. But 40 days later, they watched him depart they saw a cloud of glory take him up into heaven. He's gone. And as they stood there gazing into the sky, two men in white robes came to them and said, stop gazing up there. He's going to come again just as you saw him go up into heaven. But right now it's time to get down to earth. You've got a job to do, a mission to fulfill. He, the one who ascended, has a work he wants to get done through you. And the question is, how are they going to accomplish that? How is an outnumbered, low-income, unpopular, motley crew like this going to turn the world upside down? Well, Jesus told them how, and Emily reminded us how this morning. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Jesus said to them, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which you have heard me speak to you about. For John baptized with water, but th th I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes... You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they waited. Some of them, their names we know, names like Peter, James, and John, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Others remain nameless, but I wonder, was the leper there whom Jesus had touched and made whole? Or the paralytic who was let down through the hole in the roof by his friends to experience the healing touch of Jesus? Was he in that upper room waiting? I wonder if Nicodemus was there. Was Nicodemus finally given the new birth by the Spirit? And was he waiting with the disciples for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Or Joseph of, of Arimathea, who had given his tomb to Jesus only to have the body of Jesus resurrected and the stone rolled away three days later. I wonder if Mary Magdalene was there to 
be waiting with the disciples to receive power to testify of the one who had delivered her from the oppression of men and of demons. There's one thing all of them have in common. All of them have been changed in some way by Jesus Christ. They know they're weak, they know he's strong, and they know that he has promised to strengthen them. And so they're waiting in the very city where he was crucified because Jesus made a promise and they're trusting him to fulfill it. And that's what Acts chapter 2 is all about, the fulfillment of that promise. So let's read together the word of our God, the living word of God from verse 1 through verse 13 of Acts chapter 2. And let's worship God as we hear his word. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The main thing Jesus wants his church to understand from this passage is that we are an empowered people. We are empowered. Now, many people don't see it that way. They look at the church as impotent and powerless. Just as people were mocking the disciples on the day of Pentecost, so there are those today who sneer and who malign and scorn the church. And the devil has a propaganda machine always scheming to intimidate us. Our enemy wants us to believe we are outnumbered, outdated, out of touch, and overwhelmed by forces beyond our control. But it's a lie. There is a power active in our world today that is above all earthly powers. This power is greater than the most vile and vicious forces of evil. It's a power that has prevailed over the rise and fall of empires, nations, and rulers, and there are no term limits to this power. It's the power of the risen, ascended King Jesus who sits on the throne of the universe. And as Pastor Dan reminded us last week, our King Jesus is not on a sabbatical. He's ever fresh, he is ever new, he is never tired, and he is not tired of you or of me today. He is ready to empower us today if we are ready to depend on his empowerment. And what a difference it makes when we believe 
that we are empowered. We've seen that difference through the example that's being set in the world today by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. I watched his speech, the U.S. Congress on Wednesday, and I was spellbound. I was struck by his poise, by his confidence, by his refusal to retreat and cower before the malignant power of Putin. I am not hiding. I am not afraid of anyone, Zelensky has said. And through his courage, one journalist remarked, he is inspiring bravery in others that they did not think themselves capable of. He is breathing life into virtues that many Americans thought were on life support or already dead. A reporter asked Zelensky, how was he doing given the circumstances? Here's what he said. Life is as it is. My life today is wonderful. I believe that I'm needed. I think that's the most important sense of life, that you are needed, that you are not just an emptiness that breathes and walks and eats something. And it's in that confidence that he remains resolute. I want to ask us, church, how would the world around us change if we, the church, really believed, really trusted and depended on the fact that we are not empty, that we are not just taking up a few acres of tax-exempt land on Randall Road, but we are a people who are empowered with all the authority of our king. What if we believe that there is no institution so needed in the world today as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are the representatives of the king who alone can heal what ails this groaning creation? What if we opened ourselves afresh to the unlimited power of King Jesus and stepped into the rapid river of Pentecost and asked his Holy Spirit to carry us forward in his mission today in this place without reservation? That's what these verses are inviting us into. They're inviting us into a fresh realization of our King's power at work in us. So let's consider three things from this text. Number one, the time when the church was empowered. Number two, the signs which show us how and why the church was empowered. And number three, the impact that the Spirit's empowering presence should have on our church and on our lives today. Time, signs, impact. First, the time. The time when the church was empowered. Verse 1 tells us it happened on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost means 50. It was an annual feast that happened 50 days after Passover. And Passover was the great salvation event of the Old Testament when God rescued and delivered his people from their bondage in Egypt. And it was through the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house that the people of Israel were kept safe from the destruction that fell upon the Egyptians. Fifty days after the Passover, the people would gather for a festival. Sometimes it was called the Festival of the Ingathering, or the Feast of Harvest, or sometimes the Feast of Weeks, because it took place seven weeks and one day after Passover, 50. So last year was my Pentecostal year, 50. 
And they would bring the first fruits of their harvest, and they would celebrate God's provision and dedicate themselves to the Lord and trust in him for all that they needed in the coming harvest. And this festival also came to be associated with the, with the time when God gave his law through Moses, when Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he came down after meeting with God with a gift from God for the people, the gift of the law by which they were taught how to live in a covenant relationship with God, the God who had redeemed them. So that's what Pentecost represented. It was the time of the harvest, and it was the time when their great leader Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and came down with the law to guide the covenant people. But now in Acts chapter 2, on this Pentecost, a much greater harvest is about to begin. Because on the Passover that has just happened 50 days, 50 days earlier, a much greater sacrifice has been made. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And when he was lifted up on the cross, as Jesus said in John chapter 12, he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And so, at this Pentecost, an even greater gift is going to be given because Jesus is a much greater mediator than Moses. He's going to send down from his heavenly throne a gift much greater than the law. He's going to send the very gracious gift of his presence and his power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will write God's law upon our hearts. That's what we need to learn about the time the church was empowered. What does the day of Pentecost represent? It represents the harvest and it represents the gift. The harvest is going to be greater than it's ever been before because the gift is more precious, more powerful, and more real than the law. It's a gift. He is a gift who can transform us. So that's what we learn about the time in which the church is empowered. Now let's look at the signs, the signs that accompanied the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the signs teach us how and why the church is empowered. But before I enumerate the three signs that we see, I want you to notice that we are not empowered because of anything we do to qualify for it. You might be wondering, what do I need to do to access God's power in my life? Well, verse 2 makes it clear that they weren't doing anything to access God's power. Let me point out a few specific words in verse 2 that we need to pay attention to. First, the word suddenly. Suddenly. It means there was no buildup, no orchestration that prompted this, no performer on the stage who was whipping the crowd into a state of ecstatic frenzy. All they had was a promise. They were waiting, and suddenly something happened that changed everything. They were never the same. And I want to encourage you, church, never let that word suddenly disappear from your vocabulary of ex expectation from God. Sometimes God works gradually. Often God works through human, being, through human means and in ordinary ways. But sometimes God works suddenly. There ever remains the glad prospect of God's sudden intervention into the brokenness and into the bleakness and into the barrenness of our lives. 
So never lose that hope. God doesn't rely on us to pave the way for him to work. He is a God of sudden interventions, and that's what he does here. And notice also the word in verse 2, the phrase, there came from heaven. That's important because in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we read about heaven four times. And the emphasis there is that this is the place from which King Jesus now rules and reigns. Heaven is command central, and Jesus is alive there with all power and authority, and he is continuing to do and teach from heaven as the first verse of the book of Acts strongly infers. And verse 2 of chapter 2 is underscoring this point. The gift of the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven. By the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one other phrase I want you to notice in verse 2. It was where they were sitting. That's all they were doing. Okay? They were just sitting there, waiting, receptive to what God would do. They were the receivers, not the causers of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ray Orland says the striking thing about these verses is just how active God was toward them and how receptive they were toward God. Now, what did they receive? What can we learn about the gift they received through the signs that accompanied the giving of the gifts? So there were three signs, the wind, the fire, and the tongues. Let's look at them one by one. First, in verse 2, suddenly... A sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. A mighty rushing wind. Not a gentle breeze, more like a Category 5 hurricane. Filled the room in which they were sitting. No one had to take someone else's word for it. No one missed it. It was obvious to all. In fact, people outside the room heard it, and it caused a stir. And verse 6 says, when this sound occurred, a crowd came together. This should remind us of creation. When God formed man out of the dust in the ground, and there was just a lifeless body there until God breathed into that lifeless body the breath of life and a living person named Adam was formed. Where else in the Old Testament do we see the breath of God filling people with life? I think of Ezekiel. 37, when God takes his prophet out to a valley in a vision and he shows them this valley that's filled with dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, because thus says the Lord God to these bones, I'm going to cause breath to come into you and you will live. And so Ezekiel does that. He prophesies to the bones and he prays to, for the breath of God to come. And the breath of God comes from the four winds and fills this, this valley of dry bones. And suddenly, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, they, they come together and, and muscles and sinews and life comes into them. And, and it says in Ezekiel 37, they become an exceedingly great army. That's what God is saying he's going to do with his exiled people of Israel. All of this was a sign of a time in which God says this in Ezekiel 37, 14. This is what it's all pointing to. 
A time when God says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So on the day of Pentecost, this mighty rushing wind from heaven that fills the room where the disciples are sitting is a sign. It's a sign that verse 5 tells us was noticed by devout Jews in Jerusalem who were dwelling there from every nation under heaven. And what Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing here is he's alluding to the language of Old Testament prophets to signify that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven and he's beginning the work of restoring the kingdom that the prophets had foretold. The people of Israel are there in Jerusalem from the four corners of the known world. And when you look at the geography of verses 9 and 10, you'll see they're there from the north and the south, from the far east, from the west. And they're being filled with the Holy Spirit so that they become that mighty army that will bring the light of the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations of the earth. That's the first sign. The sign that the, G, that the King Jesus, King Jesus, is filling his church with his resurrection life through his spirit. He's regathering the exiles of Israel. He's inaugurating his kingdom, and he's going to fill his people with his royal life so they can spread his life to the nations. And what we need to take away from this is this fact, church. Without the spirit animating us and filling us, we are just an organized collection of dry bones. That's all we are. The church is like the body of Adam formed out of the dust of the ground before God breathed life into it without the Spirit. But when the church is filled with the Spirit, we become the body of Christ filled with his resurrection life and we bring his life to the world. That's the first sign. Now let's look at the second in verse 3, they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Can you imagine the scene? While this gale force wind is filling the temple, now they see a pillar of fire descending into the room. And as it descends, it starts to divide and separate. And I don't know what you call just different pieces of fire, maybe just flames, but Luke calls it tongues. They, they divide into different tongues of fire. And as this fire is burning, strikingly, no one is getting burned by it. Where else do we see this in the Bible? A fire that burns, but because it's self-sustaining, it does not consume. Well, we see it, of course, in Moses at the burning bush. Moses is living in the wilderness. He's cut off from his people. He's reject, been rejected as their ruler. And God appears to Moses in a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. And he calls him out of his retirement into a life of consecrated service to the Lord, where he will be a prophet and a priest representing God to the people and the people to God. And also in the Old Testament, we see a pillar of fire guiding the people of Israel through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And also in the temple, God would send fire upon the sacrifices, consecrating them for himself. So the fire is a sign of God's holy presence. It's a sign that you've been set apart, that you've been commissioned to be God's servant. And as this fire is filling this upper room, the people 
are in the room looking at this, and I can just imagine being there, one of the nameless 120 in the room, watching the fire separate, thinking, wow, God's going to set apart some people for his service in this room. Who's going to get set apart by God? On whom is the fire going to fall? Will it be on Peter? Will it be on James? Will it be on John? Maybe all three of them. Maybe they're going to get set apart by God. And, and, and amazingly, as you watch, the fire starts to descend on all kinds of people in the room. And you look to your right, and the sister beside you, she's got the flame of fire over her head. And then you look to your left, and there's your brother. He's got the flame over your head. And then they look at you, and they're like, look above you. God's fire has descended on you. God has set you apart. Every single individual in this room is commissioned to advance God's kingdom in the world. Every one of us is commissioned by Jesus to be his servant, advancing his kingdom purposes in the world. No longer does the Spirit of God rest on a few select individuals to perform special tasks. Now the whole church of God and every individual within that church who belongs to Jesus is set ablaze by the Spirit of God. Each one of us is commissioned. Each one of us is empowered to advance God's kingdom on earth. That's what the fire is telling us. And that brings us to the third sign in verse 4. Let's look at what it says. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, and I want you to pay attention to this verb, to speak. That's what always happens in the book of Acts when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They start speaking. They start, they start talking about God. They all become prophets, telling of God's mighty works. They're young men, they're women, all of them. That's, that's the effect of the Holy Spirit on our lives. We become spokesmen and women for the gospel of God. And it's very unique how they speak here in verse 4 because it says they began to speak in different tongues, different languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Suddenly, spontaneously, with the wind blowing and the fire descending, you've got 120 believers speaking in languages they have never learned. Languages that could be recognized by people in Jerusalem who had come from all kinds of different nations. And as they spoke these languages, they were doing it fluently, without an accent, which causes astonishment by those who are listening, as you can see in verses 7 and 8. They were astounded. They were amazed. And they said, aren't all these people Galileans? And that's not a very complimentary term. It's kind of like country bumpkins, rednecks, think of Duck Dynasty, that kind of accent, not the most refined accent. And yet, how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? And Luke, is, Luke, who wrote Acts, is very careful to list these different nations in verses 9 through 11. And that's not something that you should just brush over. It's kind of like what you find in the book of Genesis. When you read about these tables of nations in the early chapters of Genesis, and the last table of nations in Genesis is in chapter 10, where the sons of Noah are listed, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the nations that descended from them. Here in Acts chapter 2, Luke is actually 
doing the same thing. He's incorporating nations from all these same areas of the world. And now, do you remember what happens after Genesis 10? If you're really smart, you'd say Genesis 11. (laughs) And in Genesis 11, that's when the people on earth became very proud of themselves. And in their arrogance and their pride and their power, And they're architectural, savvy. They say, come, let's come together and let's build a tower that will reach into the heavens. And by doing this, we're going to make a humanistic city. We're going to make a man-centered civilization. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God said, that's not going to go on any longer. And so God looked down from heaven on what was happening in the plains of Shinar a place that we now call Babel. And God said, I'm going to put a stop to this man-centered arrogance and I'm going to do it by dividing their tongues, their languages, confusing their languages. And so you come to work the next morning and the guy that you were working with all this time, you say to him, can you hand me the hammer? And he's like, what? And then you ask someone else for nails and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. A measuring rod and everyone's in confusion. They can't work together any longer and they all leave And they scatter to the four corners of the earth and they build their own civilizations that are united around their culture, their language, their ethnicity, their race. And it's from that place that we get all the racial discord, all the ethnic strife, all the division, all the wars that have riddled the world since then. That's because of humans' arrogance in trying to build a city for themselves apart from God. But you'll notice that here... In Acts chapter 2, God is doing the exact opposite of what he did at Babel. Let's put on the screen a quote from Colin Smith that I think describes the contrast so well. At Babel, the tongues were a judgment from God that led to confusion and people being scattered. At Pentecost, the tongues were a blessing from God that led to understanding and people being gathered together. At Babel, God used the curse of language to slow up the advance of man's city. At Pentecost, God used the gift of language to speed up the advance of Christ's kingdom. God is reversing Babel here, and he's doing it by building a new community now. A community of people who will not be divided by race, or by ethnicity, or by social class, or by language, He will break down these walls of hostility and he's gathering a diverse people who are united by the love of King Jesus and who are working together on the mission of King Jesus and who become an embodied, compelling community through whom God will bring his blessing to the nations as he intended to do through Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And now after the day of Pentecost, through this new community that's united in Christ, that blessing to the nations is going to be thrust forward at warp speed. And one thing I want you to notice is that the gift of the Holy Spirit changes the subject. In Babel, the focus was on man and on man's fleeting, fading glory. But at Pentecost, all the attention is put on God. And we see that in verse 11, where it says, We hear them declaring what? The magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. And that hasn't stopped since. 
as the Bible is translated into every language, as the church penetrates every nation with the message of the gospel, there's not a thing Satan can do to stem the tide or to thwart the advance of the kingdom of Christ. The glory of the Lord Jesus is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's what these signs are pointing to. They teach us why and how the church of Jesus is empowered by the Spirit. Through the Spirit, Jesus breathes new life and vigor and vitality into his people. Through the Spirit, Jesus sets apart and anoints and commissions every single one of his people to advance the gospel of the kingdom. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus builds a new community and he blesses us in order to bring the blessings of his kingdom to all the peoples of the earth. That's the meaning of Pentecost. That's the significance of Pentecost. Now I finally want to ask, what difference should this make for our church and for our lives in 2022? The impact, the Spirit's empowering presence should have on our church and on our lives today. And I want to speak about two ways this should impact us. Number one, the gift of the Holy Spirit should give us enormous courage and assurance. Just think about it. Is there anyone you wouldn't talk to about Jesus if you knew that King Jesus was standing right there beside you? Wouldn't you want to tell everyone about him? Is there anywhere you'd be afraid to go in this world if you knew that the risen, ascended king was right there with you? Is there anyone you'd be ashamed of the gospel around if you knew that the risen, ascended king Jesus was right there, strengthening you, enabling you with his presence? Well, he is. He is, through his spirit, right there with you. And we are ambassadors of King Jesus right here in this world, and he wants us to know he is with us. Last Sunday, David Woolen sent me a text with a video of a pastor, Sergei, in Kiev, Ukraine. It's a beautiful video, two minutes, that will move you to tears. And if you want to watch it, you can text David, and he'll send it to you. And uh, wait for your phone to blow up today, David. And they asked him, what lesson, Pastor Sergei, have you learned during these days of war? And here's what he said. I would express it in one word. Emmanuel. God is with us. And if he wept with us while he was here on earth, how will he leave us now? He is with us. And that's what gives us such confidence. That's what gives us such assurance and every day we're getting emails from our partners in Ukraine displaying that courage, displaying that confidence, that assurance that they have in Jesus, the joy that they have in Jesus in the midst of the battles they're in. Yesterday in Salvation Church in Poltava, a newlywed couple was married. Pastor Sergi sent their picture. And he said, despite the horrors God sends joy to our area. Today, God created a new family. Satan cannot destroy God's plan to create a family because God rules. 
That's confidence, that's assurance. And through that confidence, refugees are being housed and fed. Even yesterday, some Afghan refugees showed up in Poltava and the church invited them into their prayer service in the evening. And even though they were Muslims, they said, we'll go, we'll go to the house of prayer. And they prayed with believers in Jesus last night. How can the church in Ukraine demonstrate such courage, such joy, such peace, such love? It's because of the gift, the presence, the power of the spirit of King Jesus dwelling in their midst. And friends, I want you to know that Jesus' presence, Jesus' influence, Jesus' power in this world is stronger today than it was on the day he was raised from the dead. It's stronger today because the power of the risen Jesus is present all over the world in the lives of those whom he indwells by his spirit. So that should give us courage. That should give us confidence. The death of Jesus did not bring his ministry to an end. It only fanned it into flames, says Russ Ramsey. He's alive. He's at work in the world today. Right now, right here, he is near to us. So let us be strong and courageous. And then the second way this should impact us is that the gift of the Holy Spirit should make us hunger and thirst for revival. Someone said that everything Jesus touches comes to life. I love that statement. Do you feel a spiritual deadness inside you? Come to Jesus and live. Don't hold it from him. Don't ruminate, don't introspect, don't try to fix it yourself. Bring your deadness to Jesus, ask him to touch you, and everything he touches comes to life. There is no death valley in us which the spirit of Jesus cannot fill with water of life and make fruitful and, and, and glorious for his glory. He is a reviving God. Do you want to be filled with the spirit like these early disciples were? A pastor I know puts it like this, the best way to be filled is to be hungry. God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God says, I fill the hungry with good things, but the rich I send empty away. The best way to be filled is to be hungry. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking of his spirit. The reviving spirit of Jesus can make this church a source of blessing in ways we haven't even imagined yet. The day of Pentecost, like the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is a unique, unrepeatable event. But Pentecost is like an earthquake that continues to send aftershocks into the world today. So I want you to hear these words from A.W. Tozer as we approach prayer and communion together. He says this, Anything that God has ever done, he can do now. Anything that God has done anywhere else, he can do here. Anything that God has done for anyone else, he can do for you. Where do you need the reviving work of King Jesus in your life? Trust that he is able to revive what feels dead and lifeless 